Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Patrick Murray. He directs one of the best polling operations in the country from Monmouth University in my own home state of New Jersey. They do some of the best political polling in the national scene, and they recently released a fascinating poll about American beliefs about coronaviruses and how this sorts out among Republicans, Democrats, and everyone else. So, I mean, it was illuminating. I learned a lot about polling, and I learned a lot about just how to analyze and think about the political landscape. So uh, I hope that you found the conversation as illuminating as I did. I give you Patrick. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you, Scott. So you are a pollster professionally, and I think I want to talk to you a little bit about a poll that Monmouth recently released around Corona attitudes. But first, I just want to ask you, like, about 2016, because I feel like people say the pollsters got it wrong in 2016, right in the election. But it 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 strikes me that like everything was in the market. Like the pollsters got the popular vote right, and the swing states that decided the election were margin of error and 70,000 votes. So like, it, it was that like every time you go to a cocktail party or a coffee shop and you hear the idea that the pollsters got it wrong, do you like want to pull your hair out? <laughs> uh, yes and no, because. Um you're right. It, it was margin of error stuff. And in fact, the polls in 2016 in the competitive states weren't off by any more than they were off in 2012. The only difference was it cha- the narrative changed. In uh, 2012, when the polls were off, uh, they were off, all off in the Republican direction. Only one state was different, Florida, in terms of the outcome of who was going to win that popular vote there uh, or the electoral votes there. And that didn't change our expectation that Barack Obama was probably going to win in 2012. The problem was the same amount of error in 2016 in the other direction uh, spread across specifically across three states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan was enough to flip the electoral college in the opposite direction of what everybody expected. If it hadn't done that, the polls would have still been off by the same amount, but Hillary Clinton would have won and nobody would have been complaining about the polls. Uh, The problem is, uh, that polls aren't precise as uh, folks want them to be. And they're also not predictive. Uh, this is a problem that I have is that a lot of, uh, a lot of the media out there covers, okay, what do the polls predict? Well, the polls don't predict the damn thing. Uh, the polls tell you what is happening right now. Now, if you have an election poll and the election turns out very much like the poll, it's because nothing changed from the time the poll was taken to the time the election happened. But right now we're in a very volatile situation where polls change a lot. So we got to get out of the idea that polls can be predictive, that polls can be precise. It's one of the things that I've been trying to do with my polling when we do elections is say, hey, there are different models out there. So there's a range of outcomes that are possible here. We are not, polls are just, you know, I I guess the the analogy that I use is if you want to put up a picture on your wall, you got to put a screw on the wall. Well, you can put it in with a hammer and it'll hold for a while, but that's not the right tool for the job. And that's what polls do in terms of elections. They give you a broad brushstroke of where things stand right now, but they don't lack the precision that you need for that stuff to stick through election day. Um, and that's that's what we have to kind of pull away from. And that's why I think where one, yeah, we, we get a bad rap because they weren't off by that much. But at the same token is we've got to educate the media not to go whole hog into talking about these polls as precise predictions, because that's not what the tool can do. Yeah. I remember Nate Silver saying like, look, Trump's got a 30% chance of winning or in 2012, he was saying, you know, Romney's only got a 25% chance of winning. And he's like, look, I'm saying like, if, if a team's at, you know, third and 10 and they're down by three or, or, you know, like, Basically, three out of four times they're going to lose, but one out of four times they're going to win. And people don't understand. Like this is you're almost doing odds making, right? And right. like, and so and long shots look, happen. Look, look and, at how many people play the lottery. 
<laughs> What's your chances of winning the lottery? And everybody thinks that they're going to hit something. And your chances of hitting something are extremely low. But you still play it anyway because you are looking for that that very low odds chance to happen. Or another way I put it is, you know, people ask, well, why should we continue to believe in polls? If the polls are done well and they have an overall good track record, and my poll does have an overall good track record. And of course, we had the misses in 2016 like everybody else. But you look at the long term and you say, okay, what can this poll do for me? I, I think it's the same thing as like, you know, in baseball. You know, if if you had your choice of any batter that you're going to put up to bat in a clutch situation, uh, you know, I think you'd be foolish if you didn't pick somebody like, uh, say, Mike Trout, right? Problem is, Mike Trout ends up go, heading back to the dugout a majority of the times he goes up to bat, right? But you're still going to put him up there, even though you know that the odds say that most of the time he is not going to get a hit. He's not going to he's not going to end up on base. That's because that's that's kind of like how polling is, is that it is a broad measure that, you know, sometimes there are misses and you have to accept the t- that that's part of uh, part of the game. Yeah. And, and, and so I, if you were going to say like you're pre- rated pretty well and there's a couple other mostly u- university oriented, but there's others like who are the other two or three polls that you think these are the people that do it incredibly well? Okay, The best poll out there. Uh, uh, bar none is the Pew Research Center, the Pew yeah, poll. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is not because like they're, they're necessarily the best in terms of predicting elections, because actually they don't spend a lot of their time in terms of polling elections. They spend most of their time doing what polls do best, which is polling, uh, asking questions about who we are as a people. And they do a wide range of, particularly during this coronavirus, you, we, you, you know, when you want to talk about the coronavirus poll that we did, uh, they're doing a lot of polling on all those issues. They do a lot of stuff that really holds up a mirror to, to who we are. And they are uh, one of the best polls around. Now, other good polls that you look at if you're looking at election polls, as you mentioned, there's a couple of universities out there. So Marist um, out there who does work with uh, NPR, PBS, and, and NBC on some of their polling. Uh, the C- Siena College, which has been doing uh, polling with uh, the New York Times, and they did a lot in the 2018 cycle. Uh, another good pollster out there uh, to pay attention to. And it's because these folks understand that there are there's always going to be a level of error in in polling and when you when you put your poll numbers out there you have to convey to folks that, that you know this is a general sense of what we think is going to happen yeah and i mean i've had robert jones on from pri and they do the kind of galca and and they do great polling but he tells me what he does like they do hundreds of thousands of calls right because they do these big picture arcs of american values and things and like and if you're trying to get a snapshot right now and something that gives us a picture on the fly, you just can't do hundreds of thousands of calls. I mean, it's just impossible, right? I mean, so so this poll for Corona, you did like a thousand calls and the margin of error. Now, this is what's interesting to me. The margin of error on this poll was like 3%, right? Right. So how do you calculate that? Like if you make a thousand fifty four calls or something, how do you calculate a margin of error? This is funny. Uh, so this is this what's called the sampling margin of error. And this is the margin of error that... Uh, or the error that's associated with the fact that you're not interviewing everybody. So a lot of people ask if there's, you know, 300 and some million people who live in the United States and you're doing a poll of a thousand people, how can it only be off by no more than 3% um, in either direction? And there's actually a mathematical formula out there that doesn't just apply to polling. It applies to anything that you do counting with a sample. So if you want to count the number of blades of grass in a lawn, uh, if you want to count the number of fish in a, in a lake, it all works off the same principle. And it's a mathematical formula that basically says, once you get into a situation where you have got a population of, say, more than 10,000 people or 10,000 whatevers you're counting, that the, the size of the population doesn't matter at all. If you plug the numbers into the formula, it's just the size of the sample. As long as you select a probability sample, that means that everybody who exists in the population has some chance some known chance of being selected. It doesn't have to necessarily even be an equal chance. It just has to be a known chance of being selected. That uh, that it really comes down to just that raw number of people that you actually interview determines your margin of error. There's, a, As I said, there's a, there's a whole formula that you plug in all these numbers. But as I said, the part of the formula that involves the actual size of the population basically equals one 
when you finish the calculation. So the population itself never has an impact. It's just the size of the sample. So in your poll, one of the things I was struck by is you asked, thinking about your current financial situation, would you say you're struggling to remain where you are financially, basically stable in your current financial situation? Or is your financial situation improving? And I was shocked at like in April of 2019, 54% of people said stable. In May of 2020, that number only went up to 63%, which I thought, wow. I mean, this is, I mean, I guess telecommuting or something, or maybe this is just people uh, half glass empty, half glass full. I mean, I, I thought that it's amazing that that number is not higher. Yeah. This is the, the number, what we're seeing is, so the number that, that's come down is the number of people who say that they're getting ahead, right? So that was, I forget. That, that, yeah, that, that's, that, that, went, that, that's the number that went down. That but, went from 25% in April, 2019 to 13%. Right. So that, right. so, that, so that's all that, you know. That, so they're, they're moving from getting ahead to um, holding steady. That's the hedge fund managers and people making masks. <laughs> yeah. But also, <laughs> but, all, but all, yeah, right. The, the, the people who are left getting ahead. The people who say that they're stable, so this is the question that I get, is why aren't more people saying that they're falling behind? So that's, you know, 20, 25% who say that they're falling behind. Why aren't more people doing that considering we also have in the same poll uh, you know, close to four in 10 who are saying that someone in their household has been laid off, that they're struggling with uh, bills. Right, right. Because you have in April 2019, 20% was no virus, nothing, and the economy is on the upswing. You have 20% saying they're struggling. And then in May 2020, it's 23%. So, in, in fact, April 2020, because so a year, so at April 2019, it's at 20%. April 2020, it, it goes up to 26%. In May, it goes down three points to 23%. So, I mean, I, th- I mean, this is fascinating. Like, I mean, th- th- that, these numbers boggle my mind. So uh, what's going on there is that people are compartmentalizing what is happening right now with the long-term impact. So the, one of the questions that we ask is, how hopeful are you that, that you're going to be you know, back on track as soon as the you know, as soon as the restrictions are lifted, basically, you know, it's all the all clear is given. Vast majority say, yep, we're going to get back to normal. So there, there's this sense that people who are out of work, that it's, and I've seen this in other polls too, where the vast majority of those who are out of work say, no, this is temporary. I'll get my job back right away. And we just don't know how true that's going to be. And that's why I'm, that this, this question that I asked about, are you stable? is really a measure of their hopefulness about the long-term consequences here. And what we're seeing is that while they're saying, I might be struggling today, but as soon as this is lifted, I'll be back to normal. How long does it take you to craft those questions? Because this is a question, again, you've been using in your poll since at least 2017. Like, so how, I mean, how long does it take you? Are you guys sitting in a room? Are you whiteboarding? I mean, you're thinking, like, because I mean, obviously you're thinking, this is a prejudicial question. This question is, you know, how do you like, avoid questions that are like, you know, that are, um, you know, I've been polled before by a, a congressman, a swing district. And I just like, it was just fascinating that polls were questions were incredibly prejudicial. Right. I mean, like, so how do you, um, well, let me get, yeah, I'll, I'll t- take two parts of that. Let, let me take that second part of that, about that poll that you did. So sometimes people will get polls, particularly if you are a regular voter, you vote all the time, uh, you're going to be high on the list of, um, getting polled if you live in a competitive congressional district. How do they know that? Because of voter records, they just, could they right. get access to Okay. Right. So that's, and that's when we do our, when we do our election polls, we actually start from the voter list. And one, one thing that we have on the voter list is, well, how often does this person vote? So if it's a low turnout election, if it's like a midterm election, you know that those people who vote all the time are the ones that are most likely to vote. If you're doing a poll and you're on a campaign, you want to know what those people are thinking. Because you want to know where you're going to spend your precious resources in terms of getting out your messaging and also focusing on turnout. What groups do you need to turn out with? What messages will work best? So that gets to the prejudicial questions that you heard on, on the poll. The prejudicial questions are, are not necessarily to convince you individually about different pieces of information. They are to kind of get your reaction. So that the pollsters and the campaign people go back and they look at the data and they say, whoa, this is the message that really got people thinking. This is the message that really moved people. So of all the prejudicial things that we said about our opponent in this poll, 
this is the one that's going to work best if we go and take it out in our in our messaging. So that's why you hear those kinds of things when you're doing poll. You're actually helping that campaign figure out which one of their messages would be most effective in moving the kind of voters that they need to move. So that's why you hear that from their their campaign. That's the purpose of, of that poll. It's not necessarily a push poll, which is not a poll at all. It's a, it's a it's a call that you receive maybe a week or so before the election, where there's there's no way any real campaign is out there doing message testing because it's too late to do message testing. It is, they're just doing kind of robo calls where they're just calling as many voters as possible to kind of put false information into their heads. And, and, and the guise of it being a poll and it's not a poll at all. They ask a question, but they don't record the answer. So they don't get it back. It's just to put some doubts into your head. That's my, a, my fan. My fantasy job is like to be the guy that, you know, the push pull kind of adds like, do you know Mitt Romney? puts his finger in the peanut butter jar, yeah. licks it, and then doesn't wash his hand and puts the peanut butter jar in the cover in the cupboard. Yeah, they, 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 the guy, the push pull kind of questions mm-hmm. become ads. There's this yeah. dark scenario. Like, right. do you know Barack Obama is the guy that, you know, um, leaves, you know, doesn't throw out, leaves one swallow of the Coke bottle in right. the refrigerator <laughs> yeah. and doesn't throw it away. Like, you know, I, I love those things. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, and that's what those push polls are. They're really not polls at all. Um, But so, but obviously I don't do that because I'm not, that's not my job. My job is to try to figure out how to objectively measure what the public opinion is as it exists right now. That question that you mentioned that we ask about, you know, are your current finances stable? Are you falling behind? Are you getting ahead? That actually came about during the time of the, uh, the tax cut bill. Uh, back in t- 2017, 2018. And what we were trying to do is kind of come up a measure that would get at how much people felt that they were benefiting from that, but not specifically focusing on that tax bill, tax bill something that we could use over the long term to measure trends. We do have a separate question that we would ask, what we can't ask anymore, which was as the economy kept going, getting better and better, the Dow Jones kept going up, unemployment kept going down. Another question that we asked, which was similar, uh, was, do you feel you're getting your fair share of the economic growth? Obviously, we can't ask that anymore because we don't have any economic growth. But during that economic growth, what we found is that it was a, it was a great question to ask because we were, we were breaking through the normal political bar. Uh, uh, political filters that people put up when they, you know, answer questions. Well, I'm for President Trump, therefore I'm going to answer this question in a way that says indicates I'm for President Trump, or I'm against President Trump. I'm going to answer this question in a way that says I'm against him. So we were trying to figure out questions that said, okay, just if we can break through that, how are you actually doing today? Um, and you can't break through it entirely. I mean, the political, the partisan filters are very strong nowadays, but those questions were helpful. Obviously, I can't ask that question about, you know, the, the economy. Are you getting your fair share of the growing economy anymore? But we can still ask this other question. So that's how that question came about was trying to figure out a question that we could use long term that would have would get a better sense of how people are looking, projecting forward and thinking how their economic situation will be because in the end that's how a lot of people vote they look at how am i doing today how am i going to how am i going to do tomorrow and right now what we're finding is even in the midst of this covid crisis we're still getting enough people who are saying that they don't think that things are going to get worse for them that hasn't changed all that much at least so far so that's that's one of the ways we come up with it other ways are as you mentioned, you know, kind of stick, um, you know, we, we, we toss things around and say, is this, is this biased or not? But the main thing that I use is trying to ask questions that uh, reflect the way people talk about and think about their everyday life. And I use a lot of eavesdropping <laughs> when uh, to do this. So I go to diners, I go to, you know, other places and listen to how people talk about the issues of the day, or I'll go out directly, um, particularly when we're doing presidential elections and I need to understand better what people, what's going into people's decision-making process. Uh, that, uh, that I actually go out to places like Iowa and New Hampshire and talk to voters out in the field there, just go out to restaurants, to state fairs, uh, to gatherings on the street and uh, talk to, talk to voters and actually ask them, you know, so what are you thinking of, you know, back in 2016, one of the things that we heard was just, it's, yeah, go ahead. When you do that, do you, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Do you tell them like I'm a pollster? I mean, yeah. do you have a notebook? So, and people don't aren't put off by that. They'll 
Yeah, well, well, sometimes I usually do, sometimes it depends on the situation. Sometimes it might be a situation where I see people gathering around, um, and particularly if there's a political candidate in town, so some people are gathering, and I'll just start talking to them just to to, to feel them out how talkative they are. Then I'll tell them who I am um, after I get a sense of them, you know, having started to open up. So usually I don't tell them right away because then they'll start getting the right answers. But once you start getting them talking, and then I tell them who I am and ask them to continue talking. At that point, they've already opened up and are, and are honest to me, so they'll continue to be honest. Um, and that's really helpful uh, because you, know, you really learn a lot that people won't tell you in ways that you, you, you hear in kind of the academic approach to polling. So one of the things I learned in 2016 that we really should have paid more attention to was just simply the, the, the anger against the system uh, that was out there. And continue to be out there. Uh, what I heard in 20, um, 2020, particularly among Democratic voters, uh, when I was talking to them out in uh, the field uh, in Iowa, New Hampshire, and those places, was that the ma- majority of them were simply looking for a candidate who they felt could beat Donald Trump. And they weren't unhappy. This was the key that I found is that they weren't unhappy the, with the choices that they had in front of them. They just simply weren't sure which one was going to be best. So when the field coalesced around uh, Joe Biden after his win in South Carolina, it was absolutely no surprise to me at all because it was exactly what I was hearing. It was just point me the way. I might not think that that was the best candidate uh, in, in the pack, but we need to settle on somebody. So as soon as we get to the point where it looks like we can settle on somebody, that's who I'll pick. Um, if so, if, if uh, Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, or one of the others had emerged, uh, the people would have coalesced around them very quickly, That that the majority of, the, of those Democratic voters. And it's interesting you say in 2016, that was, I hate the system, right? Like, I'm angry at the system. So like, I think a lot of people... I'm often not surprised that people went from Bernie to Trump, right? Like... And mm-hmm. so if you're looking at the data, I mean, I think if you're in the kind of cosmopolitan media culture, you're kind of like, oh, how could anyone do that? But if you're looking at data, right, and anger at the system is is the primary lens at which people are thinking existentially and, and, and thinking about their votes, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because these are two guys that are both saying the system's awful. And, and it, it, I mean, they're revolutionary, at least in their rhetoric. I mean, Trump has been a very establishment kind of guy governing, but like, They've been revolutionary in their rhetoric, rhetoric as opposed to someone like in the Obama, Clinton, Marco Rubio, whoever, you know, like the people that are like, no, no, the system can be reformed and keep, you know, like that, that, that probably didn't come as a surprise to you, right? Right. Yes, I, th- I think so. Um, those, it, again, they're, they're, these folks are not in the majority, but they've, they formed um, a significant block uh, in the minority that was enough to, uh, to overwhelm uh, just the norms of, of what usually happens. And that's, you're right. So if you're, if you're cosmopolitan uh, or, or if, you know, you're in, in the urban areas, you, you just, you don't hear that kind of conversation um, in the way that I heard it when I was out there and probably uh, should have heard it a, a lot more. I think if we were able to focus on it a little better, because it, what we, what we saw there is differential turnout, in 2016, one of the things that I, w- I saw in my own polls, and particularly in, in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, was one of the things that we were able to do when we do a, an election poll because we have the voter list is we actually know who the voter is that we talk to. And then we go back and look and see whether they actually voted. Now, we don't know who they voted for, but one of the things that we did see in our polls in 2016 is that among the our likely voters in our poll who did not show up to vote, more of them had told us they were voting for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. So more Hillary Clinton, there, there we have evidence that more Hillary Clinton voters stayed home at the end, just, you know, than than Donald Trump. And I think part of it was on both sides, they didn't really were happy with who they were voting for. But on the Hillary Clinton, and I think part of, part of it was they thought, hey, here's the narrative. She's going to win. She doesn't need my vote. I don't have to hold, go out and hold my nose to vote for her. Um, and they were, they end up being swamped by those folks who said, I'm against the establishment. Let's try something different. So you say in this recent, most recent poll that in April 2020, 50% of the people you sampled were very concerned about someone getting the, that they knew getting the virus, someone in their family becoming right. seriously ill. That dropped 
to 42%, even as mm-hmm. the data is showing us, and we're probably, most of the things seem like we're underreporting the cases and the right. deaths. Like it's, it's, so people's fear about people getting the virus is going down. All the while, it seems like we have these crazy stories like 332 asymptomatic cases in a Missouri meatpacking plant. Now children are getting these weird, you know, we have 20s and 30s in New York, uh, you know, getting strokes that we don't. So it's just interesting. I mean, that number was astounding to me because it seems like concern is going down while cases are going up and, and, and weird cases, you know, the known unknowns seem to be expanding exponentially. Yeah, it's again. This is hard to really pin down because that, as you said, that number went down. Concern went down as more people are telling us that they know somebody who got it. Right, so there, there's more exposure there. People are seeing, are actually seeing it directly. I know somebody who got it, and yet fewer people are saying I'm concerned about getting it. And I think the what's happening there is the point is as people are seeing. Uh, people don't understand statistics, I guess what it is, is uh, we're seeing rates of uh, reported rates of 2%, 3%, 4% of the population getting it, depending on what area you live in. Now, that means that, you know, one out of every um, 50 people or, or 100 people, you know, somewhere between one out of every 50, one out of 100 people are getting it many of them um, not symptomatic. And what happens when people see that and say, oh, I know somebody who's had it. I know somebody who's had it. Oh, that's not as many as I thought it was because they don't understand. You know, they think uh, two to 5% is, is you know, my neighbor, that my, my neighbor on either side of me is going to get it. And that's not what it means. And so then they say, well, then it's not as bad as I thought it was because I didn't understand the statistics behind it without realizing that, you know, 4%, rate is incredibly high for an infection that can kill people. Uh, Could you say and, in, in, yeah. in, in the people that in April, 2020, it was 26% of the populace that knew, who, who knew somebody. Yep. And now it went up to 40%. And, and, and yet people's concern is dropping. I mean, this is astounding. Right. And I think it's because they say, Oh, uh, now that I know somebody who's gotten it, that I mean, there's almost a, an immunity to that. And then now that I know somebody has got it, it means that, you know, I'm, I'm I'm off the list of potentially getting it. I, I think people think that way, right? Um, so you you're you're going to know somebody who's got it. Oh, I know somebody. My coworker got it. The ergo, nobody else I know is going to get it because I've already found the one person that I know is going to get it. I had a guy on the podcast last week that his name is is Luke Conway. He's a psychologist at the University of Montana, and he writes for the heterodox academy blog with jonathan Haidt, like the righteous mind kind of you know these political psychologists very bright guy and he did a sampling and he was saying that which your poll shows like there's a partisan lens right like if you're a democrat you're more concerned about it if you're a republican you tend to be less concerned about it but he found in his research that if you're a republican that knew somebody that gets the virus and is adversely affected, your views change. I mean, mm-hmm. have you, it, it, does that seem reasonable to you, or have you found any of that kind of... I'm not sure that we found that on a mass level. Um, bec- what, we are, what we're finding is the views are changing in large part based on what leadership is doing. Uh, so in, in the States, it's, it's at the gubernatorial level, mainly. Uh, obviously, the president uh, has uh, his impact, uh, but we find that the, the, that a lot of it has to do with how, how states are doing. So, for example, in Ohio, where a Republican governor is uh, really locking down the state uh, and, and imposing restrictions there in ways that we see many of the, the Democratic governors on the coast doing, uh, he's getting very, very high, higher than anybody else bipartisan support. Because a Republican leader is saying that this is important, and therefore you're seeing Republicans fall into uh, into line with that. Whereas you are seeing bipartisan support in places like California, New, New York, and New Jersey, but not to the same level as you're seeing it in um, 
in a place like Ohio where the Republican governor is doing the same exact thing. So I, you know, that, and that's where I study things from is it, that point of view is, is what impact can leadership have on changing opinions? And that's, that's a huge impact. So I, I think that that could be part of it is as well. So I, I you know, I don't know. I, I would have to look at, at the details of that because we haven't seen uh, on a mass level, a huge shift uh, among Republicans. We did, we saw it in April. And that might be, you know, this is, I guess I'm backing up here. This is moving so fast that we are seeing shifts in opinion occur from week to week. And so I guess maybe if I was looking, if we were talking about this, say three weeks ago, I might say, yeah, yeah, we're seeing a bit, we're seeing a big jump in Republicans because we did see that in our April poll from March to April. But then we saw, we've seen it come back down a little bit in, um, in May. So it's interesting as I talk with you, I think, I think most people think of pollsters, as in in a mathematical statistician kind of model, but it seems to me your self description is more like a photographer, an artist. <laughs> like you're trying to like take a portrait of where we are. So this is the picture right now, right? And the picture will change. And I'm not prescribing; I'm describing. Is that is that ring true? Is that yeah? Is that that, I mean, that, that's my approach. In fact, statisticians make the the worst pollsters uh, because statistics. Why is that? Is, because statistics is a tool that we use just to verify that the information that we're collecting is statistically significant is, is actually does reflect what we say it reflects, but the best pollsters are pollsters who understand sociology, who understand psycholo- psychology. We're, you know, people who are interested in painting a picture of what society looks like. Uh, and that's, that's actually, my, although my degree is in political science, my actual concentration is in political psychology. I was I'm, I was interested in how people think about things. How do they come to decisions about things uh, uh, related to politics? And I think that you know that kind of background, understanding sociology, understanding these social sciences. How do people think? How do people behave? How do people gather? And trying to paint that picture is what makes a good pollster because that's the that's what the tool of polling really does. The statistics end of it is just is is just the backing uh, that gives it. Uh, gives it credibility. It's not though what drives it. And that's one of the problems that we see with a lot of these statistical analysis, particularly these aggregators, they're, they're statisticians. They're approaching polling from, from a statistical uh, endpoint, which is great because they can take a lot of data that's collected by a lot of different people, put it into models and, um, you know, come up with some statistical, uh, statistical ideas. Although what happens is I think that they end up going too far and they don't understand the social science behind polling and all the kind of the vagaries and 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 the and the lack of clarity that exists when you actually are polling public opinion uh, that that their models miss, um, and so that's why you know if you get to a Nate Silver model that says there's a thirty percent chance, well I, we still don't even know what that means. It's a decent enough chance, but it's only because your model has taken all this t- information from all these different sources and has assigned a probability to it that may or may not apply in this particular context. This is another thing in your Corona poll that is fascinating. And this, again, the, you know, you can psychoanalyze your own, your own sampling. Thinking about you personally, has the Corona impact had a major impact, minor impact, or no real impact on your daily life? So the people that said major impact in April, 2020, were 62%. In March 2020, it was 53%. April was 62. Now it drops to 56%. I mean, do you think that's because things are opening back up? Or, I mean, I I mean, that's because I I think it it is still like, if if you're in the Northeast, it's, it's, you know, it it seems like there's no new normal on the horizon. I mean, like New Jersey, New York, Southeastern Pennsylvania seem like they're going to be like shut down for, for the mm-hmm. foreseeable future. I mean, like, so I mean, that, that boggles my mind. I would, it was funny because when we, when we did this, the, we asked this question the first time in, in March, as the shutdowns had just started happening in most States, people were just amazed that it was only at 53%. Now it's higher in the Northeast. It's over 70% in the Northeast right now. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are regional differences because of that. Uh, but still, a lot of people ask, well, if it's 70% in a state like New Jersey, well, why aren't the other 29% saying it has a major impact? Most of them are saying it has a minor impact on their life. What's the difference between major and minor for a lot of people? What are people actually thinking in their heads 
that that causes them to say, yeah, this is just a minor impact for me. Uh, and I think, you know, some people are still working. Uh, some people um, have been retired all along, so it really doesn't change their life except, to, you know, just a, an adjustment in how often they can go out or where, where they go. So I don't know, but you're right. I mean, this is this was one of the big psychology questions that I had. That was kind of the head scratcher that uh, that it wasn't almost everybody who was saying it had a major impact because it really had it's changed the way we live. And I think that gets to the sense that there are some people out there who just say, "Hey, look, I roll with the punches. This is the this is what we're living with right now, um, and I'll deal with it." Uh, and I think that is a good question for a psychologist. Yeah, and I wonder how much of this is the American kind of disposition, right? We're kind of generally optimistic. I mean, we like presidents like Reagan, Clinton, Obama, right? That, that give us a picture of it's a morning in America, right? I mean, it, we're kind of we tend to not like dour or cynical, uh, or you know. So, I mean, do you think some of that is just like people? Again, the snapshot reveals what we want to believe. When the data strikes me as like. I mean, Ed Young, who I'm hoping will come in the podcast this week, writer from The Atlantic, um, he wrote this piece. I, I, I wrote it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is really scary. I mean, what we don't know is, is terrifying. Yep. Yeah, I, I, it really is. Uh, there's a lot of work out there about how we, you know, kind of uh, can put the blinders on. I mean, psychologically, you can. But I, th- I think you're right. I think there's also an American ethos out there. That also says, let's look on on the bright side of the, that question that we talked about at the beginning. You know, are your finances stable? You know, people are not willing to admit that they're falling behind, at least at this point, unless the evidence is so overwhelming that they have to admit it. Because, the you know, the next day, you might get up the next day and you, you things will look a lot better. But at the same token, you know, there's a lot of works at work out there. And again, I, I always forget this author's name, but the, the name of the book is Strangers in Their Own Land um, about... Uh, folks who live in polluted areas along the bayou in, in Louisiana and how they, they accept that that is the way things are. Um, and, you know, many of them, they fall back on their religion or religious beliefs uh, in order to accept that. Uh, but that, you know, we, we just have that, that sensibility that, that we don't normally, as a whole, we don't normally take to the, to uh, the streets. Uh, it's, you know, to protest every little thing that happens to us. I mean, the fact that we do see protesters there, one of the things I point out with them is that they really represent uh, protesters on the, on COVID and on the, on the restrictions that we see in some of these state capitals is that they really re- represent an, a very, very small percentage of the population out there. Yeah, because the, the polls I've seen is like 77% of even Republicans say we're comfortable with the restrictions or think they should be stricter. Yeah. I mean, this is, people are really, I think it's fair to say, right? People on the whole are scared right. by this thing. Right. They one thing that they do, one thing that they accept, and I, I talked about leadership earlier, is if leadership is consistent in their messaging, the, in a crisis, then they accept the need to do what that leader says. Like Andrew um, and, Cuomo is right. the is the model portrait of this, right? The guy, like yep. he's 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 you know incredibly consistent on in these press briefings and. He's kind of like the opposite of Trump, who's up, down, you know, and, and, and people seem to trust him. Right. And that's, a, you know, one of the questions we asked was, was, is Donald Trump being consistent? And the vast majority of people say, no, he has not been consistent in what he said about COVID. And that and that's not just like a throwaway question. That is at the root of trust in, in leadership. And that's why his numbers in terms of whether he's doing a good or bad job or you approve or disapprove of his handling of, of COVID has gone down since it first broke. Whereas uh, folks like Andrew Cuomo have maintained, you know, numbers in the 70s to 80 percent in terms of their handling of this consistency in a crisis is so important uh, in engendering trust in the population. Uh, and then this sense that we will turn the corner uh, that you, you see that you see it play out uh, in these numbers for the governors versus the president. So this is interesting to me about as a pollster, when you look at Donald Trump, right, he, it's not that Obama or Bush, either Bushes or Clinton never got in the low forties or something in their terms. It's that they also got above 50%. Here's a guy that has never really gotten to above like in the, in the big samplings above like 45, 46, like, but never drops below 38. I mean, like this is a, 
is this not just a new normal of a tribalist kind of culture where like where basically you know i think of i've talked about this with a few guests recently like i it blows me away george hw bush was 20 points down to dukakis coming out of his convention and then won a landslide like that many americans were persuadable yeah is is, is this kind of like the new normal where people are just gonna have bases that are basically indestructible where you're going to, you know, where you might not go above 44 or 45, but you're not going to go below 39, 38. I don't know. Um, I don't know whether this is, I mean, there's no question that Trump's support or, or lack of support, depending on which side of the equation you're looking look at is built on a foundation that has been building for past 25 years since the mid nineties, right. So that, that, that we have been building a foundation where these partisan tribes have separated and dug into their trenches. But at the same time, Trump is, and I love this Latin term, uh, sui generis. He is yeah, of yeah, himself, he, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no other, there is no other thing on, on, uh, unlike Trump until the next one comes along. Right. So if I, we heard, go- I, I heard one commentator say Muhammad Ali was unlike any boxer, fought differently than any heavyweight champion, changed, the, but didn't change the sport. After him, everybody went back to fighting the way heavyweight boxers did. So, like, he's a sui generis fighter that was a phenom, but didn't change the sport. Right, and I th- and so that's the question that we have. Uh, my th- my thinking is we won't have we won't we won't necessarily see the same type of thing as we see with Donald Trump. But because Trump just didn't come out of nowhere, like Muhammad Ali came out of nowhere, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. He built on a foundation that was already that if it hadn't been laid, he wouldn't have been able to take advantage of it uh, and be successful. Um, So that foundation is still there. And Trump may have, in fact, strengthened it. So we might not see it in the same way. But I think we are still going to see a situation where there probably is lack of movement in the in the polity uh, because people are dug into their trenches. We might see more movement with the next president than we have with Trump, but maybe less movement than we have seen with any other president prior to that. So, is, I mean, okay, politically, right? If I'm hiring you to, you know, be a consultant for my campaign, are you just going to say just dump all your money into Wisconsin or something? I mean, like, right. Cause it's not going to be, I mean, our electoral college system makes things really intriguing, right? Because you could, Trump could win again with a smaller, uh, minority, a right. smaller number. That, right. That right. right. So he lost the popular vote by two points. He could lose a popular vote by three, maybe as much as four points and still win the electoral college. Right. So it's just this, so why isn't like at both parties just move permanently their offices to Wisconsin or Michigan? You know, I mean, is this is this kind of the future of American politics where you just right. one of the mistakes that you can make is fighting the last election. Uh, what I mean is just you know, thinking that what what the what the um, dynamics of the last election were is what's going to happen this time around. Uh, so that could be a mistake. And I, I I don't have the data available to me that the, hopefully these campaigns have, which is that they're they are doing intensive polling in each of these con- competitive states. But there could be a question of you say, do you write off Wisconsin and focus on Arizona and North Carolina instead? And you don't know that until you're pretty sure of who those voters on the edge really are, the voters who could, in a very close race, be decisive. Uh, we know who they were in 2016 in in the rural areas of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. We're not sure whether that will be the same this time around. So, for example, can Joe Biden offset those voters in those states with a better turnout among African Americans in the urban areas of the state, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Detroit and uh, Milwaukee? Uh, if that's the case, then you are focusing not on convincing those other those voters that you that were lost the last time but in getting out the base there and then turning to some of these other states like Arizona and North Carolina where you might be able to convert some voters who weren't converted in 2016 because the dynamics have changed one of the things that we've seen in our polling that that will point to this is Donald Trump not doing all that well among older voters and he won older voters uh voters over 65 
Uh, many of these voters are people who voted for Donald Trump for a change, but they have been around the block. They've seen many presidential administrations and they know what normal is. And some of them are saying, you know what, this is just a little too much change uh, than, than I bargained for. And I need to go back to normal. And, and, and Joe Biden is a very good representative of that. So in those places where there is a concentration of older voters, Wisconsin being one of them, that might be who you focus on. You don't have to worry about. So this is so, you know, what's what's your what, what is your prescription for for what a campaign should do is it's different this time than than last time. So don't make the mistake of fighting last time's battles and looking at the at that the voters who are important last time because it could be different this time. Do people do campaigns call you like, hey, Patrick, I know you're from Monmouth and, you know, like, you know, you're sort of you know, you're in a university and you're but hey, can you give me some advice here? What do you think? Do you get calls like that? Uh, well, let's go, we get a couple of things like uh, smaller campaigns, like uh, sometimes it's a, a small congressional campaign fighting, you know, n- not in the mainstream uh, looking to fight a primary or other types of races like that, uh, where they'll, they'll ask if they can hire us, um, which you can't. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, but I will get called. It was funny. The first time we did the our coronavirus poll. And we asked a question about how the governors in your state were doing, but we obviously didn't do a large sample. So we didn't have each state. And this is the, that March poll where the governors were getting 72% appro- uh, approval overall. I started getting calls from governor's offices or, or people who represent governors saying, do, do you have the number for California? Do you have the number for New York? Do you have the number for New Jersey? Um, which we didn't, um, you know, they wanted to see how their individual governor was doing because we didn't have the state level uh, data at that point, which we do now. Uh, rarely, I, I think what happens is organically though, sometimes I'll run into uh, somebody from a campaign and I'll talk, I mean, I'll talk to anybody on, on the record um, about what I think because what I'm saying to them um, individually is nothing that I wouldn't say here on this podcast or anywhere else, uh, for that matter about what I think is going on and what I think is, uh, you know, the different strengths and weaknesses of a campaign vis-a-vis the voters. You know, there are a lot of other things that go into a campaign that I know nothing about, but vis-a-vis what the voters are thinking and, and, and what they're liable to react to either positively or negatively. And I'm willing to, to talk to people about that. Um, because I, it's nothing that I, I wouldn't say to anybody on the record. I don't give anybody secret information, for example. Is there a rush? Like, I mean, I, you know, I was on, I scour news sites, you know, for guests and for the content of the podcast. And I, I see you on Drudge Report or something links to Bloomberg. Is there, is there kind of a rush when your poll like gets a lot of traction and is there kind of like, all right, that's, you know, Hey, we're out there. Like we're, we're people, is it like an artist, like who, who has a, uh, you know, a picture or a portrait and people are looking at it in, in, in the art show. I mean, is that kind of the rush? Um, that's, that's an interesting question because we do, we just poll so often now that, um, that it's constantly out someplace. Uh, what I find, what I really uh, is interesting is if I get a really good reporter who wants to dig into numbers, and look at something that might not have been evident on the surface. Uh, and sometimes I'll work with that reporter to, to kind of run some extra data uh, analysis and come up with a new story that we weren't thinking about originally when we looked at the data. Uh, and that kind of, that actually kind of is, is interesting to me. And I enjoy seeing that in print because I say, oh, look, we've just contributed something other than how many points ahead is Joe Biden? All right. Uh, you know, because everybody's doing that. Uh, we, we actually uh, did an understanding. So the one thing that we're looking at right now in our polling, there was a piece out in Politico, and I know others are working on the same thing, is uh, these people who don't like either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. They don't have a favorable opinion on either one of them. And right now, Joe Biden is winning that group significantly. And so and Hillary Clinton had a slight lead with that group going into the 2016 election, then ended up losing it to Donald Trump. The question is, who are these people? Well, they're slightly different than they were four years ago, the people who don't like either candidate. Uh, they're more democratic fundamentally. They just don't, simply don't have the, you know, they're not in love with Joe Biden, but they're, they're Democrats at heart. But more importantly, they're Democrats in heart in part because, uh, you know, the, it's a reaction against Donald Trump. And it was a re- reinforcement of what we've been looking at all along, which is the, the election is a referendum on Donald Trump. 
And and right now, it doesn't really matter what a lot of people think about Joe Biden, because many of them just simply say that he's an acceptable alternative, considering what we have now. And that group that doesn't say that says that I don't like either one candidate is saying at the end at the end of the day, but I don't like having Trump in office more than I feel about either candidate, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's interesting because then the Reagan Democrat kind of thing has disappeared or the kind of, right. you know, I mean, what's interesting is you you have this group of people that, and you wonder, like, does Trump help the Republican brand or hurt it long term? And that he's got them in power and they've obviously got some judges and some tax policy and deregulation things. But long term, is Trump going to hurt the brand? It's, it's, especially because it, let's say he loses in 2020, right? He's not going to go paint portraits of disabled veterans or do a Netflix documentary like about. I mean, he's going to be on Fox News every night. Like, so, so, so you have to like. So, so it seems like from a polling perspective, right? Like, the people that react negatively against him and just like, oh my gosh, we need this. This is a viral kind of thing in our politics. Like, they're going to. He's not going to go away on that as an next president, right. right? Like, so th- this is the the. Faustian bargain, right? Like, kind of, you know, you're making a bargain with the devil in the sense of like, of like, kind of putting your party's hopes and dreams and, and and the resources for the future on somebody that just consistently pulls so negatively, like with a group, a large group of people. Yeah, this is. I mean, what's interesting is you know we ask not only do you approve or disapprove, but you know do you or your favorable or unfavorable opinion? Do you have a strongly unfavorable or favorable opinion? And nearly half of the public, it's usually it usually hovers around forty eight percent, have a strongly unfavorable opinion, versus about twenty five percent to thirty percent who have a strongly favorable opinion. So. Even though that the favorable to unfavorable looks fairly even, it's usually about you know forty five percent to fifty two percent or something like that. Is that almost everybody who has an unfavorable opinion of Donald Trump? It's strongly unfavorable. So those people are kind of locked in. Um, and the question is, the party, the the, the Trump party, uh, because right now the Republican Party is the Trump party. It doesn't have its own identity outside of Donald Trump. If Donald Trump is not physically technically the leader of that party, if he loses re-election or goes away in, in some other way, shape or form, can they, they're still the Trump party. Can they then rebuild back to being the Republican party? And that's the question you're asking. Is that the long-term effect? Because the Trump party without Trump at the head of it doesn't seem as attractive or as able to hold itself together um, as a Republican party would with, uh, you know, that, that has other principles that are holding it together. And so I think that's the problem is that the evidence suggests that it would be very difficult with, once Trump is out of the picture for the Republican Party to suddenly to claw its way back to not being the Trump Party, at least in the short term and, and possibly in the long term. So when you set up a poll, like, do you, I mean, how big is your staff that does the polling? Okay. Well, um, you know, so our technical staff, the staff that works on it, there are full, four full-timers. And then, of course, we work at a university. So we, we want to always give um, students an opportunity to work on, on these polls. So we have graduate students and undergraduates who work as research assistants for us, so do a lot of background research, a lot of number checking, a lot of things, you know, like if we're going into a campaign in a state, there are things that we need to know, such as what are the rules of voting in the state, uh, particularly in a primary, who can vote in the primary, early voting, all those things, uh, and candidate bio, bios. So we have our students doing all that. The actual telephone interviewing that we do, we actually do off-site. We use a, a private call center to do that, that one, one I've been working with for uh, over 10 years now. Um, so it's almost like having our own in-house call center without having to worry about having to hire everybody, particularly at this point in time when when they've had to do a lot of transitioning to um, having their interviewers work remotely from home, which they had already been working on. So that actually makes it a little easier. You can actually monitor folks uh, working directly off their own computer um, at home. So uh, so that's why we've been able to continue doing all all these polling. So that's a huge staff. You know, there's there's dozens and dozens and dozens of interviewers who, who work on our projects through that company as well. 
And so you, do you walk in, do you whiteboard? I mean, are you guys like, like, I mean, who, how much do you as the director, are you kind of like, all right, this is guys, this is what we need to pull on right now. Right? Like, how do you, I mean, are you kind of like reading the papers? You're looking at judge report. You're looking at CNN. Are you kind of, and, and are you kind of going in going, Hey, this is what's important. We got to pull on Michigan right now. Or we got to pull on this. Or so, so you're kind of the guy that comes up with like the portraits that need right. to be painted or the or the photographs that need to be taken. Right. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it does come down to me. It's uh, I'm, I'm keeping my eye on, you know, what's going on. Uh, for example, our original plan for these months in the spring was to see how the primaries were going, the presidential, the democratic presidential primary. Um, if, uh, if somebody had, we would, if somebody hadn't emerged, we would continue polling those primaries. If somebody did emerge, we would be transitioning to, uh, polling in competitive states, uh, and starting to establish a, a benchmark of what issues were important in those competitive states to answer some of those questions that you asked me a few minutes ago, which was, you know, should we spend our time in Michigan or, or Wisconsin or what, or who, which voters are important. Um, but. With the coronavirus, we uh, totally changed what we were doing over these few months and doing significant, we're just focusing mainly on national polling because we wanted, we thought it was much more important to track the issues related to this, um, this pandemic and how it affects American life than it is to get an early start on, um, what the groundwork, what the, what the baseline looks like in a place like Wisconsin or Arizona or North Carolina, and, um, and quite frankly, I think even if we did that right now, we still wouldn't, that baseline might not hold in another couple of months. So yeah, no, that, that makes sense to wait. Yeah, no, that's a, I know I had Noah Rothman on the podcast, um, two weeks ago, maybe. And, you know, he's from commentary magazine. He's a meet the press and, you know, Bill Maher. So like, he'd be very, he said, anybody that thinks they know what's going to happen in November is insane. Because you know, if turnips going to go up or right. turnips going to go up or down, or like because it's just the known unknowns out there are so massive and in our face that we have no idea what the how it's going to affect the election. I mean, it, it's especially since like generally, right? Like when turnout is low, it helps Republicans, right? Because generally, the people that go out are seniors, and yet. The, the the reliable voters might be scared of Corona. And is that going to, if they're, you know, all these things and, and, but will they, but will they be the reliable mail-ins if we do mail? I mean, these things are all just like, so variable. It, it, it seems right. impossible. And, predict, and right? what we're saying is for, so seniors, for example, and we're saying, we're seeing some evidence that seniors aren't as Republican this year as they were, but how many of them are actually going to go out? I mean, we, I actually did poll in, um, Michigan, and remember that that was held just before, like kind of a really lockdown happened, and I also pulled the Arizona primary, um, in uh, which was basically done all, almost all by mail with with very few people showing up to vote in person at that point, and so we could see where our poll done about five days before the, the Arizona primary was off because of the differential in people who didn't actually then didn't show up because of the sudden rapid change that came and they said, uh, guess what? I'm not going out to vote and it's too late for me to get uh, a mail ballot. So the, the question is, uh, and I get this question a lot right now. So are you changing your likely voter models because of what's happening? And the, the answer is yes. And then the second question was how? And I said, I don't know yet. I don't know because we need to know where, where, what side of the curve we are on in the fall. We don't know, have any idea what that's going to be yet, how much the reopening is going to happen, how safe people feel about going out and about and doing the normal things that they do. And the other thing that we don't know is what's happening state by state on vote by mail. You know, so California has now said we're mailing every single voter vote by mail. So now that's going to change how you poll California. Um, what are other states going to do? So we have to wait for to, to learn that information before I can have any real clue about how I'm going to approach doing likely voter this year than in any other presidential year. Now you're at Monmouth university. Are you walking on the beach these days? I mean, I, I'm actually, I live about an hour from, from the beach, uh, from the, from my office. Um, so I haven't which seen direction? Uh, uh, 
<laughs> which direction? Well, certainly not east. Uh, that would put me in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, no, I live d- directly west of, of that. So I live in, in the center of New Jersey around New Brunswick. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, I've lived there. Um, yeah. Yeah, multiple. Well, uh, Patrick, you are doing a great public service. You're probably not going to get Blue Angel flights uh, for it or things like this for the airport. Yeah, no, yeah. No, and I miss them too because, unfortunately, the Blue Angel flights that went over uh, both New York and Philadelphia just skirted away from where we could see them. Could hear them, but couldn't see them. But anyway, oh, I, we try to do a good, we try to do a good job and try to make some sort of contribution to what's going on out yeah, there. Yeah, I appreciate your work and it's helped me and I hope um, you continue it and, and, you know, do it with uh, with joy in, in this really weird time we're in. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.